0: So, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. We're all suffering reading insecurity at Oak at the moment because David Suchet came to leave a session <laughs> on how to read the Bible really well. So there's huge amounts of insecurity, Nobody anybody reads from the Bible at all, anywhere near college. He was very wonderful. And a very wonderful clarity to his doctrine of Scripture. As he reads Scripture, he is very clear, God speaks to us directly through the word of uh, his storyteller, but he speaks to us directly. That's wonderful to hear such clarity from somebody who's been used by God to give his voice and give the scriptures to the whole world through the web. Uh, 200 hours to do the reading, 800 hours to prepare. That puts almost to shame, doesn't it, when we think about how we prepare for reading in church. So off we go. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zulfite, from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord. Her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they'd finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. We'll break off at that point. Shall we pray and ask God to help us as we come before him? Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks We thank you for this word from you written down for us and directed to each one of us according to our need of you today. Conscious that those needs are different. We've come from different settings. We face different sorrows and experience different joys. And we pray that each of us may know today that we have been spoken to by our sovereign Lord and Heavenly Father. And we'll ask that you'll speak to us of your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So let me take slightly longer than usual to get to the details of the text by beginning with a couple of stories, uh, if you like a snapshot of the world in which we live and serve, so that we can then set those alongside the, if you like, the church and the world, to give the language in which Hannah lived and served. There's no need to take notes at this point, or any point, I always think outlines make excellent compost, but do use them if they're useful to you. My first story goes back to my early 20s, when I was privileged to serve for a couple of years as a parish assistant in different parts of the country. Slave would have been a better word for it. And after university and before theological college, I spent years in two different churches, sitting at the feet of two of God's great ones. I was surprised and shocked when one of them told me a story of some of the battles he'd been fighting in what was then ministry division in London, long before the current sort of incarnation of that organisation. At one of the theological colleges that he knew quite well, the students had arranged a series of wife-swapping parties. The authorities found out, they suspended the students involved, and then they were keen to have them back a year or so later to continue their training and head on into ordination. And my friend stood up to them and prevented that from happening. Now fast forward 20 years or so to a part of the country that I know reasonably well. There's a minister who has now divorced his wife, eventually having had at least two affairs uh, in the years before he divorced her. But the whole village in which he serves all knew about, and he's still in post. Another well, minister, and again a part of the country I know well, who was ordained in spite of two broken marriages behind him, absolutely certain if he'd been poor rather than wealthy, he would never have been ordained. Now, the two stories are two that I have told you out of, in a sense, selections of either end of 20 years. You have stories like that, you know you do. We all do, but they trouble me, just as they trouble you. And I find myself asking a question, and it's a question that's, in a sense, sharper if I ask it like this. What does it mean to be faithful? in an era of what feels like ecclesiastical anarchy. What is an ordinary believer to do about that? Well, I'm not just about finger-wagging, there but for the grace of God go any, any one of us, each one of us. But how is an ordinary minister to respond to that kind of stuff going on? And it does go on, as you know, as well as I do. What will it mean for an ordinary church family to live wisely and well when all around them, I think we could say, everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes. And you know that. Phrase comes from every man does what he thinks is right in his own eyes. How shall we sail our little dinghy, if you like, through the choppy waters of the moment and through the choppy waters that look like getting choppier into the very short-term future? Well, the church family, the church council, church members and the church family where I've served for these last 20 years are asking that sort of question. I, uh, I find that students, thinking of ordination or training at the moment, are asking similar questions. Mark and I were with some recently, and I don't fuel their anxiety, but I do share their uncertainty. And I'm asking myself, and I'm learning to ask them, well, what will it mean for you to be faithful? What will that look like in your own life, in your own ministry? But here, we can ask ourselves, what will a, a faithful ministry look like in a setting like that? And that's why I, I, I went first to the book of Judges, because it seems to me I want to approach Samuel through Judges and then through Ruth, and then we'll land in 1 Samuel chapter 1. You know what Judges is like. It's a period when everyone is doing right what they think is right in their own eyes. It seems to be quite a good place to take our questions about how can we be faithful in an era like that and ask the book of Judges to help us with the answer. So I did what I often do. I began teaching the book to a group of small boys, if I can make something to make sense of something, make it really clear for uh, young people, then I find I can explore it with adults later with much greater freedom. So Charlie Exley asked me with a very long face as we came to the book of Judges, he said, do you mean real blood? And I need to explain, in order to make the battles in Judges clear, I decided that we'd have a sandbox to represent the, bo- the land of Israel. So this big box with sand in it, and I explained to the boys that when generals brief their troops, they set out their battles using a sandbox. So we borrowed some toy soldiers from one of the boys, set out the troops on the map, and I announced each week we would need a boy to be in charge of blood. Each week I asked one of the boys to squirt blood into the sand on the spot where that week's battle took place. And that's when Charlie actually began to go pale. We used ketchup, and the boys loved it. And we read through the whole of the book, asking that question, what does it mean to be faithful in an era of anarchy, got to as far as the end of the Samson stories, and I thought, hey, do you know, I think we better stop here. We didn't read about the Danites and the Gibeonites, because they're under 10, these boys, and in my judgment, that was too soon to show them the part of God's word in which, what happens? One part of the people of God opposed a kind of form of homosexual outrage on the rest of the people of God, but by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges there's no real answer to our question. What does it mean to be faithful in a period when everyone does what is right in their own eyes? God can be trusted, the light comes on, a judge does his thing and then disappears and then the light comes on somewhere else, but no general answer to the question. Then we read it in the book of Ruth. A story of village life that appeals to us in a village A story of loneliness, and bereavement, and bitterness, and we know about those things. A story that takes place out in the sticks, involving a very ordinary family. And the encouraging news that God's plan moves forward, away from London, away from Canterbury, away from Washington, if you like. God achieves his good purpose through a lonely lady who turns out, you don't need to tell me, that she's King David's great, great granny. There's great encouragement, isn't there, for anybody who lives or serves in an ordinary place that no one's ever heard of in the book of Ruth. And great encouragement that faithfulness might look like showing up to work, going to the field on that particular day. It just so happened that someone else was in the field that day. But that God is well able to carry out his good purpose without telling us, in terms of headline news, what he's doing. He didn't bother to say at the time, although he did make it clear later that that was a very critical encounter. And then, having gone through Judges and through Ruth, then we meet Hannah and I think she does offer us a kind of answer to the question that we've been asking since the very beginning of the book of Judges. And she is another of my heroes, if you like. What do we can see in, in her? Well, one couple I know waited 28 years of marriage for the birth of their son. 28 years of disappointment, month by month and year by year. 28 years of praying and hoping. 28 years of, te- of tears. 28 years of pain and unfulfilled longing. 28 years of... And again, some of us know what that is like, either in our own experience or the experience of our family. We're not told as we meet Hannah, how many years she has to wait. But as we come into the chapter, that's what she's doing. She's waiting. She's waiting. She's waiting for God's future. So here's a map of where I want to go in these three talks. In the first one, I want to encourage you that weeping with Hannah and praying like Hannah pictures God's people in her era. So she's somebody with an honourable past and a hopeless future. And I suggest that her experience may well resonate in different ways with ours. In the second talk, I want to persuade you that listening to God's chosen singer, Hannah, will steady us and encourage us and help us as we wait for God to tip the scales and establish his justice. So I've called that the singer and the scales. That's tomorrow. In the third talk, I want to remind you that God is perfectly capable of revealing himself and establishing his glory without any help from us. And that's wonderfully liberating for us. And I've called that the butcher and the barbecue. We'll get there the day after. So if you like outlines, like headings, here we come. We're landing uh, the unhonourable past and a hopeless future. You see, Hannah's from an ordinary family, an ordinary little place. Look in verse 1 with me. Ordinary little place you've never heard of. a Zophite Hill Country, Ephraim. See Elkanah. He's got a decent uh, uh, genealogy. Uh, it It seems to be not long reading the scriptures, but before you see that actually if someone gets a genealogy... It's so like waving a flag. Pay attention to this person. They're a social note. They're important. And Elkanah's genealogy is up there. He's got a proud history from his fathers. But with his wife, Hannah, he has no prospect for the future. We're not told why he took Penina. Maybe that's because there was no offspring through Hannah. But she's been waiting for years to have babies. We know that because we're told that the kind of baiting that went on from Penina uh, went on year after year after year. And the chapter isn't written to, in a sense, um, express the pain of infertility, but it does do that exceptionally clearly. And nor is it written to show the pitfalls of polygamy, but again, it does do that very plainly. There's something exceptionally cruel about Penina exploiting her own fertility to give grief to Hannah wrestling with infertility. But here she is, she's, if you like anything these terms, putting her centre stage at the start of the chapter, she's a woman with no future. And I suggest we're being invited to wonder with her, is is there anybody out there who will or can do anything about that? Because she's not the only one who's waiting. God's people are waiting. Judges told us in those days there was no king. Repeated refrain at the end of the book, as you know. And God's people are still waiting for the coming of the king who will protect them and defend them against their enemies. And Again, I want to persuade you in these three talks that Hannah, if you like, is a a portrait of a bigger spiritual reality. She, in her closed-off future, pictures what's happening to God's people in her era. I'll put the different pieces of the case that I want to make together gradually, particularly with the song which we come to tomorrow. But let me just state it out there. She's a picture of the people as, the, of the, as a whole, not just an individual woman wrestling with infertility. And if waiting wasn't easy for her, it wasn't easy for God's people either. The military threat was not getting any uh, easier from the Philistines. They've lost a lot through the book of Judges. As you know, looking back through it, they've lost all kinds of, their, of the hallmarks of their identity of the people of, as the people of God in that time. There are idols amongst them borrowed from the local religions, as you know, there's rape and civil war among God's own people. And they're not certain what the future holds for them. And they're not sure, I would suggest, how to wait faithfully for it. They don't know if they have a future. And Hannah, I I think, will will show us what it means to wait faithfully for God. And her experience shows us where we might direct our energies. So, as you can see on the outline, four short scenes. I'll run through them quite quickly, then we'll step away from them and think about them together. So look at Hannah under pressure in scene one. We're in verse three, uh, some kind of sacrifice. Uh, in, uh, it's not possible to tell which one at Shiloh. But verse four, what we can see is that it's always the same routine every year. Slap up dinner. Elkanah gives a piece of meat to each wife and one for each of the children. Just think about that for a moment. One plate here, one for you. One plate there, one for you, one for your child, one for the next child, one for the next child, one for the child after that, One, oh, just one for you. And Penna is getting more and more food year by year. She's got at least four children already. You can see that, sons, plural, verse four, daughters, plural, and she's cracking on. And Hannah just needs one plate, one portion, that's it. And every year she goes through the same ordeal. Do you see that? Isn't that an extraordinary picture of cruelty? Verse 6. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Verse 7. Year after year, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. It's a picture of extraordinarily painful, cruel internal division in Elkanah's household, some of us serve in churches and we deeply divided, spitefully divided with relentless, deliberate provocation of one another. Elkanah loves her husband, verse 5, he gives her another sausage because he loves her, but, but that's not enough for her. And look at his question at the end of verse 8, I love his question. Don't you think this is great, um, if you're sort of thinking of pastoral care and uh, pastoral manner? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons, he asks. And it really is a dumb question because the answer is no. No, you really, really don't. Just one would be enough. And so I wonder if she's tearful and can't eat. If that's what Peninnah is like, if that's what Elkanah is like, what a place for Hannah to have to endure her infertility. And you see the cause of her infertility? Look in the verses there, verse 5. The Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6. We're told again, the Lord had closed her womb. And that seems to be, if you like, the main point of this particular heart of the story. It's God who's done this. It's not just a little bit of kind of of gynecological difficulty. God has closed her womb. No future. So a vicious enemy in the other wife. A hopeless husband does nothing to protect her. But the real issue is that God has closed off her future and God has refused to give her a child. And that's helpful, isn't it, to us in church life when disaster comes, when serious illness takes hold of somebody critical in our own life or in our ministry, an accident, declining numbers, division, spite, pressure, and growing and growing hostility from the surrounding culture. Hannah's experience reminds us that for some reason God has allowed this. And we may not ever understand why bad stuff happens to other people or to us personally, but here, Hannah's experience underlines that God is in control, whatever may happen, and however the painful the that he brings to us. And what again strikes me is the start of verse 7. Do you see how God allows Hannah to go on suffering? First line of verse 7, this went on year after year after year. And we might be tempted to say, well actually I think I've had enough of that now. I think I've got that now. I think I've out of tears now but no, God allows this to go on year after year, after. it was part of his plan if you like, to build this painful experience into her life and not take it away and make it an annual renewal of pain and bitterness and spite and difficulty and he allows her to go on year after year after year but that doesn't mean he's forgotten about her or doesn't care about her and how hard it is for us to remember that in ministry for ourselves and for those around us. When people we're we're close to face intractable problems in their families, year after year after year, the temptation to draw the conclusion must be doing something wrong for that to carry, or it's our fault in some way or other, or couldn't you do something different and then it would stop? But no, for Hannah it goes on year after year after year. And if we're right to see her as, if you like, a picture of what God's people are going through in that particular era corporately, then again, it may be helpful for us sometimes in church life to say, do you know, sometimes there isn't a quick fix. Sometimes God's timing isn't ours. Sometimes our difficulties do need to go on for year after year after year. I remember somebody telling me about a church plant in a well-known city in the north. They've been looking for a building for 15 years. He said, it took me 15 years to find this place for us to be that's a long time isn't it year after year after year to endure all the hassle of having no home so hannah's experience uh, i think alerts us to the fact we may find ourselves waiting and waiting and weeping and weeping year after year after year i hope that's good news scene two hannah at prayer verse nine we're still at shiloh do you see how she's left the party as usual in floods of tears? That's what happens. That happens every year. Elkanah makes sure that that's going to happen. Uh, sorry, to makes sure it's going to happen every year. Off she goes to the sanctuary. An old man, Eli, you see in verse 9, is on a chair by the door. And the chair is the mark of his office in a society where most people sit on the floor. And the language in verse 10 is very strong. In bitterness of soul, she weeps and prays. Verse 11, she makes a vow. And we know what's in the heart of her vow. And do you see what she does with her pain? She speaks to the Lord who has made her barren. She's bitter at what God has done to her. Our storyteller doesn't go up behind a bush and say she shouldn't have said that. He simply records her prayer. And then she vows that if God will give her a son, then God can have him. And he'll be specially consecrated. And we're seriously hoping he'll turn out to be different from Samson. Because that's the last time we kind of had razors and that sort of stuff going on. And then look at old Eli. If Elkanah was not so good, Eli doesn't do a lot better. Does he, do you see, he accuses her of being drunk. She's been pouring out her heart to the Lord, and he thinks that she's had three too many glasses of wine. Maybe you just stop on that for a minute, it's a very remarkable picture of the moral standards that poor old Eli has been getting used to now that his sons are more or less in charge. If he thinks someone who's turned up praying because they're muttering, he assumes they've been drinking, it shows you what his, not just his carol services were like, but if you like, what all the services that ever he saw people come to were like, that it was even conceivable that she'd been drinking when in fact she was praying. So if her husband is no help to her, the clergy are no use either. And all of us can think of times when we've spoken carelessly and made things worse in the lives of people who've come to see us. We realise afterwards, whoa. I was way off beam. I had no idea that's what was going on. I am sorry that I didn't listen or that I spoke hastily into the situation. Well, she's not drunk. She's desperate. She's pouring out her heart to the Lord. He recovers. He reassures her. He pronounces God's blessing on her. Must have been quite a grating of gears, wasn't it? From you're really drunk, get out of here, to, oh no, the Lord bless you and give to you what you have asked from him. And she believes him. So scene three. You see, in scene three, God answers her prayer. I love that line. You see verse 19? The Lord remembered her. (coughs) And he's good at remembering, isn't he? We know that from earlier in the story. When he remembers his people and sees their suffering, that's the trigger, isn't it, for the action that follows, the rescue, the overcoming of all that has been keeping them captive. And here he remembers her. And he has a powerful memory. And then you know, it's she and not her husband uh, who names the boy. She explains the boy's name and the waiting is over. God has given her a new future. Well, scene four, verses 21 to 20. I didn't read this earlier. You remember the story. She stays at home two or three years while Elkanah goes up to the temple regularly, or to, the sh- the, uh, uh, to the shrine regularly, wherever he's going. And essentially Elkanah and Eli are passive in this last scene. It's God and Hannah who are the major players who get together. Four years later, she's back. They wean babies, as you know, at about three years. And here she gives her boy to God. She'll hand him over to Eli. She'll take this boy to where Eli and his sons are in charge. And she reminds Eli what happened four or five years earlier. And here she is back with the boy she's received from God. He'll spend his whole life in God's service. If you love a four-year-old, or you know a four-year-old, just think about that for a moment. It it must have been exceptionally painful, in some ways seemed like madness, to leave a little boy with a weak-old man like Eli, surrounded by his dodgy sons, Hophni and Phinehas, but she's trusted God this far in the story, and she's not going to stop trusting him now. How challenging is that sometimes to entrust our four-year-olds into a place where we'd rather not take them because God has brought us there. Not easy. So four scenes. Hannah under pressure, Hannah at prayer, God answering her prayer, receiving her praise. What are are God's people going to learn, if you like, over the years as this story is spoken to them by God directly? What's this going to do in their life together for a 1,000 years? before we encounter Mary and her song and listen to her song when she heard that she was going to have a child so unexpectedly. (coughs) On that thousand year trajectory, what sort of faith does this particular story encourage? It's worth thinking about that, isn't it? We sometimes kind of miss out that step in our awareness of what scripture is doing. It has a a history in the life of God's people for 10 centuries before we have the Magnificat and the wonderful news which echoes Hannah's song as Mary speaks in similar ways. And the song does a similar thing, announcing the birth of the Lord Jesus. This song has a, and this scene has a kind of a life for God's people as a whole, and we think about that for a moment. Well, it seems to me that what's very wonderful is that here's God responding to Hannah's initiative. And let's just uh, underline that it was Hannah who was a woman and not a man. And here's our storyteller holding up Hannah's experience for all of God's people to see. Surely it must have been a great encouragement to the women among God's people whether or not they had children of their own. A great encouragement. Work of God that takes two volumes to record, starts here, starts with Hannah. And if I may say so with respect to the ladies here, as men in God's ministry, in ordained ministry, it's very, very helpful for us to be reminded of that. Do you you see that? It starts with her. It starts in her experience, her pain. And what God did through her, he's often done again started a great work through a woman working away behind the scenes. And how helpful to remember that in ministry. I came across somebody who was, uh, who was dying. And uh, he was open to spiritual things. It turned out he had a Salvation Army granny. And his Salvation Army granny had prayed for him and spoken to him and made spiritual things plausible to him in ways that no man had been able to reach him. You don't need to remind you of the story of Maria, who uh, looked after a lonely, unhappy little boy in Chiswick. She was the housekeeper. She was the acorn from which the oak tree that was in the end Lord Earl of Shaftesbury's ministry grew. She was the one who saw in that little boy something and loved him. So you see, here's a chapter which is telling us that actually it's not necessarily what the men are doing that really matters. My Diane and my wife tells me that uh, all women in church already know this and that it's really obvious. Um, I, I am not sure it's obvious to all men because the men in chapter 1, whether we like it or not, are all useless, <coughs> without exception. It's not Elkanah who triggers the next stage in the plan. It's not Eli, he thinks she's drunk. And it's not his sons, and we'll come back to them tomorrow. And then you see, it's, it's again, don't misunderstand me, don't mishear me that here, but there is a sense in which God seemed to respond to Hannah's initiative. I know it's the Spirit of God who draws her into praying. Ultimately, it's all God's initiative. But look at the emphasis on her praying. Verse 10, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and, and prayed to the Lord. Verse 12, she kept on praying. Verse 16, I have been praying. Verse 26, end of the chapter uh, I When the woman who stood beside you praying, verse 27, I prayed for this child. It's beautiful, isn't it? When Hannah prays, God remembers. And surely her, her, her experience and this snapshot of what God is able to do through someone who begins to pray, who weeps as she prays, is a great encouragement to us as churches, to be praying people, as individuals, to be praying ministers. How difficult is it? is it to be a praying minister? It is really hard to be a person who really prays, talks more to God than to other people about God. So if it's tempting to look around us and notice the decline among God's people, the moral chaos and the weakness of churches, and respond in all kinds of different ways, surely Hannah reminds us to pray. And then you see how God responds to Hannah's initiative? Actually, normally when God makes a move in the next stage in a story, there's an angel or an oracle. That's certainly true, isn't it? When he's about to send Samson, the angel arrives. Look, that's going to happen next. But here, no angel, no oracle. An ordinary woman in bitter sorrow and tears. Nothing special about her, no particular virtue. She's ordinary, and that's the point. But God is the sort of God who responds when someone like Hannah praise. She pours out her heart, he sees her tears and he answers her prayers. And how encouraging is that for us? And then it's God who responds. Do you see that he gives to Hannah what she asks for? She she asks for a son. And there's a huge emphasis on the fact that she's asked for a son. Verse 20 I asked the Lord for him. Verse 27 The Lord has granted me what I asked of him and God gave Hannah her son. But if you track back with me, sort of going backwards from the Magnificat, and you look back at this story through 10 centuries of the life of God's people that, if you like, flows from this particular moment, in this particular chapter, and you think back on that arc of the sort of shape of what God is doing as we're heading on our way towards towards David, and then from David on towards the coming of the Lord Jesus. If you look back, and from where we are looking back, from our side of uh, Easter our side of Pentecost. But just looking back from the other side of, of Mary's experience, God's people in 10 centuries, they can see that God not only gave Hannah what she asked for, which was her son. He gave her far more than he asked for. He gave her more than she could ask for or even imagine that she should ask for because her son is going to be Samuel, a leader and ruler, Through her son, we're going to have the word of God spread from tip to toe of the land. He's going to put a stop to the rot that the judges had allowed to, to, to spread. He'll lead God's people to a famous victory against the Philistines, and she didn't ask for any of that. She just asked for a son. So I want to suggest to you, and I hope I'm beginning to at least make this plausible in your mind, that she pictures what it looks like to be faithful in a period of ecclesiastical anarchy. She reminds us that God responds when we come to him in prayer, in, in bitterness and deeply, when we're deeply troubled, in grief and anguish, with problems that have gone on year after year after year. We've surrendered to His sovereignty. We don't like it, but we surrender surrendered to it. And she knows that she has no future unless God answers her prayer and gives her a future as a gift of his grace. And if we're freshly uncertain about our future, Hannah reminds us that we were never entitled to a future. We're always a generation away from extinction. We only ever have a future as a gift of God's grace. We're always infertile spiritually <coughs> unless God gives grace and birth and the privilege of seeing new life. There's, in a sense, nothing different about me feeling more uncertain about our future than we might have done in years gone by. And as she comes, the God of Israel remembers, and he's a great rememberer, and he responds and begins to take action, and through her prayer, he is at work in ways that reaches, yeah, the villages where, where Ruth was, the place where Naomi was, and right on beyond. And so I want to suggest to her, to suggest to you that let's weep like Hannah, at what is sometimes bitter, spiteful, persistent division that we see amongst uh, people who should be getting on with each other. And let's pray that God will give to us by grace a future, fertile future, with, if you like, all kinds of births the moment are beyond our imagining, beyond our understanding, because he's able to do that. And he's shown before that he loves to do that. As we sit, let's pray together. The words of the Apostle Paul seem to me to resonate with the way that Hannah prayed and God answered. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen thanks Johnny You've given us plenty to think about as we begin let's uh, let's stand Let's uh, respond by fixing our attention and our eyes on our God. Let's stand where the music begins to play.